most people look at the Gen Z and then they curse them, right? They're like, oh, strawberry. This generation, them entitled, you know, them useless. Uh, forget them, lah, right? Uh, that's the word on the street, right? But if you think about what Mark Cuban said, what he said was, this is the most educated, uh, financially capable generation that is going to make an employment decision based on a set of criterias and not just the pay package, for example. I resented the baby, right? To be very honest, I hated it. And I felt angry, right? That he was just blocking me from achieving my goals faster. But then everything changed, right? Because after the first year, I realized I could help. I realized like I could interact with him. I could take him out by myself. Uh, the business was more stable. And I started to discover the, the joys of fatherhood only after about a year. Hello everyone, my name is Farhan. And I am Anna. You are listening to The Lessons We Learned, where we dive into the lessons that Asia's best and brightest business leaders have learned in their lives. In this episode, we have Carl in the hot seat. Carl is a co-founder of Helpmill Media. Although you probably know him from SGAG, you might have laughed at the beginning. But this joke Facebook page is now letting Carl laugh all the way to the top. Thanks for coming on to The Lessons We Learned, Carl. Let's dive into it. Carl, tell me about your childhood and your growing up years. Well, I had a pretty great childhood, man. I was born in an expatriate family. My parents were immigrants from Hong Kong. They came here in the 80s. I was born here uh, a couple of years in their journey as expats. So I was born into like international school environment where I was surrounded by kids from all over the world and got to expose myself to all sorts of cultures, all sorts of people. And, you know, my parents were like, should we go back to Hong Kong or should we stay here? And they're like, yeah, let's just stay here. Life is great here. So I went to like primary school here and then did all the way to NS and, and, and very much a Singaporean. But I think giving me that exposure of being in the international expatriate community and also going to public school, uh, like private uh, like normal primary school has really benefited me in seeing that the world is actually a very, very big place, you know, like kind of taking that risk, uh, coming all the way here, starting a family afresh, uh, as my parents did, was something that I think really stuck with me since I was a kid, you know, like you could kind of move anywhere you wanted, you could kind of do anything you felt like. So I had a great childhood, you know, family, I have a brother who's much older than I am and very, very different. He's a nuclear scientist with a PhD, double masters in chemistry. So I was kind of like that rebel kid that came out seven years later. Nobody really cares about what I do. I do what I want to do. I just kind of roam around with my friends. I had a really fun childhood, lots of friends around me all the time. So I would kind of describe it as that, you know, had no regrets, just really, really, really fun. Was there a, any particular episode growing up that shaped you to be who you are today? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, my, my dad came to Singapore as an expat in an advertising agency uh, on an expat kind of role. And he was laid off. He was laid off, I think, in one of the, I think, the 98 recession, uh, the Asia financial crisis. So it was kind of that scary moment because he was working in corporate life all, all, the, all the while, the whole entire time. And then suddenly it's like, oh, we kind of have no income. Like, what are we going to do? Right, we gotta cut back on some things. We gotta like make sure we have enough to weather whatever is ahead. And we didn't know what to expect because my mom was a house homemaker, right? She was a housewife. She took care of us kids. 
she was a nurse in Hong Kong, but she didn't work when she came here. So we were like very unsure. And then he decided to be an entrepreneur. He decided to start his own agency and decided to start his own business. And that was kind of the whole story. He kept drilling into me. I was like nine years old, right? And I just remember him telling me that he's going to do this now. We're going to start this business. And you really need to understand we can't take holidays like we used to because we used to follow him for these like business trips and we'll just tag along in the room. And he's like, none of that anymore. We don't have a secretary anymore. You know, we got to make things work. And to me, I was scared, you know, I was nine years old and I was like, wow, what does this mean for me as a kid growing up? But it's so cool, you know, that he's starting his own business. He has a office that we can crash. And that was kind of uh, a thing that stuck with me, I guess. So growing up later on, I was always like, yeah, I should just start my own thing because I could see how people, how he controlled his own destiny by moving to Singapore, controlled his own destiny by kind of starting his own business and not sort of just following the corp- climbing the corporate ladder anymore at a certain point. So I think that left a very deep impression in me. But you didn't start out as an entrepreneur first, right? You were a real estate agent, if I'm not wrong? Uh, that was actually <laughs> when I was in school. That was my part-time job, um, still very much in uni. Uh, and the reason I did that was because I wanted money. I wanted money to go through uni, to go for exchange. Uh, I wanted money to do my own thing without having to ask for money from my parents, which I felt was kind of weird at that age to be asking. And back then, 2009, it was property boom time in Singapore, right? Like I had a buddy of mine, we went to JC together and then he bought his first condo at 21 years old. First year of uni, I still remember, it was a studio apartment in Tanjong Paga. And I was like, how did you pay for this? Like, you don't come from a rich family. And he was like, dude, I bought it with the commissions that I made. And I was mind blown because we went to JC together. He was a normal kid like I was. So he kind of encouraged me to kind of, hey, why don't you get a license? Let's sell houses together, like two, two bros would. Lah. And I was like, wow, that's such a great opportunity because you don't need to put in the hours to trade for income. And I really love that concept because prior to that, I was teaching guitar and I was like charging, what, 30 to $50 per student per hour. And I was like, wow, if I want to make more to save for exchange, that's literally at the expense of my grades in school, which already wasn't that great. So I was like, this is all going downhill and I'm just teaching random kids how to play Taylor Swift songs. It's not going anywhere. And this is miserable. I'm lugging this big guitar around school. It was terrible. So I was like, why not try this? So that was kind of how I started real estate. So I did that for four years, 29 to 2013, uh, as a part-time gig in school. And how did that lead you to starting your business? Well, I, I, well, the real estate job was, was great. It taught me how to sell, right? I think it taught me sales. It taught me how to look older than I, I actually am. <laughs> when I sold my first house, I was 22 years old. And the guy I sold it to was a multinational CEO. And he thought I was like 30s, right? And I was actually 22. And then when he saw my IC number, he was like, what? You're 22 years old. And then you just sold me this house. And you didn't tell me your age. I was like, why do you need to know my age? Doesn't matter, right? You like the house. You like my service. That's all that matters. So... I realized like I was pretty good at sales. Like that's one thing I could confidently say I was better than most people. Because at that point in uni, I realized I was a worse student than most. I couldn't do a lot of things that other people could do easily. And I really didn't understand what my superpower was. So I was trying to figure out what am I going to do with this sales skill? And I knew that I didn't want to be an agent forever because intellectually it didn't stimulate me as much as I needed it to. And I was just wondering if I should do like a real estate startup. So I spoke to Darius from 99 Co. I was like, man, maybe you have a job. Can, can I join you or something like that? But then I realized like I had that desire for me to start something of my own. And and that was so strong and so over 
overbearing that I just needed to do something. So I realized like if I failed as a startup owner, I could always go back to real estate because I had the skill sets, I had the knowledge and I kind of knew how to do it already. But that was the safety net for me. If all else failed, just go back to be a real estate agent. But why not do something else? Why not do a startup? And I was so inspired by the early days of Block 71, just walking around, seeing the Carousel guys, Darius, you know, all these founders walking around. And I, and the one thought in my head was, all of them can easily get a job in any company that they want. And they're all super, super smart. But here they are walking around in Bermudas and flip-flops and, and cheap company t-shirts and eating crap from Block 71. That was, that had a weird kind of, attraction for me and I was like wow why would anyone do this this makes no logical sense right and coming from a school like SMU I was like why would anyone do this this is ridiculous and then I realized wow the whole mission drivenness the whole purpose driven of of starting a startup was so inspiring and I was like wow I want to be one of these guys because it was super super cool for me what do you think you like pain and suffering (laughs) I mean, I, I'm very curious because, you know, you said you see all these people eating crab and wearing Bermudas. But on top but, of the yeah. physical things, I mean, I, I came from SMU, right? Around the same batches, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, at that point, everybody wanted to be an investment banker. Everybody wanted to be a consultant, right? To be a, a startup founder is actually going against the grain. Absolutely, yeah. I I think naturally as a year one student, I was like, yeah, I want to be an investment banker. I had no idea what it meant. And then I didn't realize I'm not even taking finance. So I'm like, how can you be an investment banker without a finance uh, degree, right? So I was like, wow, it's so cool. Everybody's getting these big salaries, wearing these nice suits, going to CBD, eating expensive meals, driving expensive cars. Isn't that wonderful? And then after being a real estate agent for a while and actually earning decent income for a while, I realized like I was completely not interested in the concept of my money like it had no impact on me as an individual um and then i was like huh so all this money talk what's it for like i have no interest in a in a expensive belt or expensive shoes or expensive clothes or expensive car like it really does not motivate me at all right so the question in my head was then what motivates me right what was that thing that i was searching for because i had worked i made some money had no impact my clothes were still the same i still didn't have a car and nothing changed like i still don't go out to eat expensive food i still eat where i ate before so i then realized like that was who I am, right? That was something that was different in me, maybe. And I was looking for something. So when I was asking myself, what am I looking for exactly? I discovered this word called impact, right? I saw that I wanted to do something that was impactful, right? And I was very much moved by the fact that, you know, we have one life, we live one time, and we need to make full use of our time on earth, right? To do something impactful. But impact is kind of different for everybody, right? There's climate change, there's a lot of social impact, right? And there's a lot of different different themes to it. But for me, I was like, am I ready to go and change the world to be a social worker and start a social business? And I was like, no, not really. Am I interested in climate change? Not, not all that much, right, compared to others. So I was kind of looking for it. And then I discovered the word comedy, right? Because it was that nice mix of being a bit of a douche and a jackass <laughs> together with making people laugh. And then 
laughter has that nice connotation of making someone's day. So to me, that was like, wow, that's really cool. If I could make like a million people laugh every other day, wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that bring a lot of smiles and a lot of joy to people around me? And I was just so captivated by that concept. Yeah, that's like a nice middle ground. How do you make a business that creates maximum impact, but it's also not so extreme like climate change and social impact, which was not me as an individual back then. So that's kind of how I thought about it. So it started purely as a business? No, it started for fun. So the backstory is I started the page with Adrian Xiaoming, my co-founder, in school, in SMU, because we were both running our own businesses, right? I was doing real estate. He was running a t-shirt printing business. And then when we graduated, we knew we were not going to work in corporate. This was year three, year four uni. We had given up on those fake investment <laughs> banking dreams, right? We realized we are not like them. We'll never get that internship. So we faked internships. He interned at my dad's company and I interned with, some, I think, his parents' company. And we pretended to be the receptionist when the school called, right? So we just kind of faked it. And then we realized that we wanted to start up. So when I first graduated, I started my first company. Uh, it was an enterprise software company and it failed in nine months. He continued to do his t-shirt printing business and it wasn't very great. Like, I mean, t-shirt printing business for CCAs and schools, secondary school, you know. And I'm like, man, did we really go to SMU, go through all that crap? to print t-shirts and to like <laughs> fail at some enterprise software, which is not that, all that fun, right? So we were like, man, this really is miserable. Maybe we should get real jobs so that we can settle down and get married or whatever. But then we had this meme page and the meme page was like crazy. We started it in school, but he continued to run it after school, after we graduated, through contributors just sending stuff to, to us. And when both our businesses failed, he was like, dude, you should take a look at this because that year Facebook released Insights kind of the analytics to how the page was doing. And I was like, wow, a million Singaporean kids literally read the memes every week. Zero customer acquisition costs, zero marketing costs. It's just organic virality. I'm like, surely we can make a business out of this. And he was like, yeah, that's why I'm approaching you. Because if there's anybody who's going to do it with me, it's got to be you, right? And we had run a blog shop business together after mm -hmm. NS before, and it failed. Like, we fought so much. I hate fashion. I hate working with him. <laughs> I'm like, we will never be business partners. Never, ever again. And then he was like, let's do this. And I'm like, no, I, I don't want to lose this friendship. So we really need to talk about it. So we sat down for like weeks and then we just grilled each other and we talked about it. And then I decided to try for three months like a consultant for the business and those three months was just magical like whatever we launched went viral and we had so much fun working together so many ideas just two of us in this scrotty little hot co-working space that we rented in Ubi and I had so much fun I was like yeah I think we could do this for at least another year and just kind of figure it out right try to find what we call ramen profitability just kind of find product market fit and then just try to make enough so that we could feed ourselves and take the bus to work I'm, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that you actually worked together before, but then you hated each other's guts, yeah. more or less, right? And then, but you still, be, you still remain friends. Like, how does that work? And why then, you know, like, do you feel like maybe sometimes, you know, that old adage of, you know, friends shouldn't do business, but do you disagree with that adage? Maybe, maybe it's just wrong business fit, for example. Yeah, I think, I think where we started that, we were fresh out of NS. So that means we were like 20 years old, right? And we were both hot-headed, uh, immature, and insecure, 
right? So we had no idea who we were. We were just kids who wanted to make money. And my ex-girlfriend had one of the most successful blog shops in, in Singapore back then. So we were like, let's start a male version of it, right? So easy, so natural. Like, didn't ask the question of why, right? Simon Sinek says, always start with why, but he hadn't written the book back then. So we were like, uh, yeah, don't know why. Never mind, just do la, good money, right? So we went to Bangkok after school and then we just kept going to Bangkok to buy these shirts from Chatu Chat. Came back, tried to flip it on Life Journal. The drop shipping. Drop shipping ish. You know, we we made five hundred bucks in a year, split between like three of us. Right, there was one other partner, and then we were like, huh, <laughs> like that's totally not worth it, right? Um, and we realized we were very different people. Like he was extremely critical about creative things. He was very like mm-hmm. e- emotional. He was very creative, and I was extremely different. Right, I was more logical in my approach, no emotions involved, just kind of straight to the point. Why do we need to beat around the bush, right? So. We couldn't get along. And then after uni, we were like completely different people. I think we were in a much different place, right? We were secure, we were self-aware, and we were like, yeah, we are very different. We're really good friends, but we have also grown professionally and individually. And we are able to talk about self-awareness. We're able to talk about ourselves in a way that we couldn't back then when we were still kids, right? So that gave us the confidence to go, okay, the most important thing in this partnership is the friendship. Right, we can always start businesses, but the friendship from JC all the way. There's only one. You can't relive that moment. So let's preserve that. Right. The second thing is he's also not very interested in money. He's interested in the creative pursuit, which sounds very like, oh, you know. But he really is. And we were like, okay, let's never agree to never fight about money. Let's always choose to walk away. If we ever disagree, sue each other because of money, I I told him I will walk away first, right? And we agreed on these fundamental principles of working together as friends. And sure enough, after that really intense conversation in 2015, 2014, uh, we've never fought since, right? Um, We actually don't fight at all. There's a lot of discussion and disagreement, but there's no screaming matches. There's no like slamming doors, which we used to do when we were much younger. I think it just came along with maturity and just kind of being older and and a lot more mature in our thought. And is there also, there's also mutual respect and there's also clear division of roles? Yes, absolutely. Clear division of roles. He touches all things creative, content, ideas. I don't care about what you do there, but there are certain ground rules, for example, that we agree to, right? But for me, I told him, all things business, uh, let me handle all things investors let me handle right all things about the management uh, nitty gritty let me handle and I think that clear division is really really nice so we don't kind of enroach into each other's turf but we as respect each other's opinions right so for example if he feels there's a certain business decision that he disagrees with and he would ask me to reconsider it he would do it in a way that's really cool right and I would have to respect that decision because he's my co-founder right so these are things that I think we've learned to work out as professionals just being professional at work I think was the big difference between our first business and our second and are you guys still very close friends I would say unfortunately maybe because we see each other so much we don't hang out on weekends together to to have fun because it's like oh my god we see each other Monday to Friday right so I think we would rather maybe hang out with other people uh, or maybe not even that much time to hang out because now we all have kids and families. So we spend a lot of time with the family. So we've done less fun stuff, uh, definitely, as compared to the early years because we used to just like play Dota and like hang out and, you know, do what young people do. But now we don't do that all as much, all that much. So I think things have definitely changed, but I think it's only natural. What are some of the... So you mentioned, you know, you started out in a 
co-working grotty space in Ubi and then you saw the virality. But I think it is very hard to change that virality into a business kind of idea, right? So many websites have come and gone, so many meme pages have come and gone. Like, how do you make sure, like, you first of all, you turn that views into money and how do you keep that going? I think the first model was... If you have traction in terms of content, then we need a business model, right? So that 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 thesis was quite simple. You have traction, now you need money. So the first experiment was, let's try to sell stuff, right? So the first thing we did was to sell vulgar t-shirts. You don't buy. That was the first thing we ever did. So you don't buy t-shirts, $20 a pop, put it up as a meme, wear it, and then tell your mom you don't buy, right? Or tell your teacher you don't buy. <laughs> and he modeled it just like our old blog shop days, right? The natural, easiest thing to do. And we sold some ridiculous number, six or 8,000 pieces in wow. like uh, 24 hours. And this was pre like Ninja Van, pre logistics for e-commerce days, right? We literally put together a Shopify landing page, put it up on the Facebook page, and then thousands of people bought it. And we were like, wow, first reaction, that's enough money to pay the both of us for the next year if we draw like ramen profitability salaries take bus and eat right that's only two criteria, right confirm enough right 500 bucks a month times two times 12 so we have enough <laughs> runway to last the year the second problem came which is who's going to pack and fulfill this like crap that's us and we are both super disorganized so we got wrong size wrong address wrong color right and then we shipped it out sat on the floor and just packed for two weeks straight, right? So shipping was late, orders were wrong, people were riding into Kaupe, right? And then I was like, oh my God, this is miserable. How many vulgar t-shirts are we going to launch to hit that million dollars, right? How many? I was like, never again. This is backbreaking. It's painful. I don't think people want that many vulgar t-shirts. So we we're like, we need to find another business model, right? And we got very, very lucky to be, to be frank. Um, it wasn't something that we planned for. We were very, very lucky. So, we finished that, we had a bit of money, and we're like, yeah, you know, we can find the next thing. We don't want to sell more t-shirts. So we started making content, right? And we started making content about brands. Like, we started making fun of brands. And one brand that we made fun of back in 2015 was Scoot. Because they were launched as a low-cost carrier from SQ, and they were trying to, like, break into the millennial marketing kind of thing. It was cool. It was supposed to be different. It was trendy. And they were trying to do all these social media campaigns, and it was not working, right? And then one day, North Korea decides to bomb South Korea, and then they were about to, like, go to war, right? Remember 2015? And then they decide to launch a, a flight to South Korea. And then we made a meme. It was like, Kaninaseyo, why are you sending us to die in South Korea? And then usually when we tag a brand, the brands freak out. And they're like, no, 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 don't reply. PR crisis, don't reply, right? But then Scoot replied us and said, hey, Eskak, don't, don't scare lah. You want to go? I'll give you 10 free travel insurance for 10 of your fans if you want to go. And we were like, whoa, that's the first time a brand has actually come back and, and like talk back to us, right? Which was quite fun. So we, we left it as that. The next week, it was the peak of bird flu. And then they launched a flight to Nanjing. And then we were like, oh my gosh, it's you guys again. Why are you sending Singaporeans to die in bird flu now? Last week was North Korea. And then they replied us, they were like, Asgak, don't skip. You know, I give you 10 pairs of tickets for your followers, free. And the post went viral. Then the CMO called us, hey, who are you boys? Huh? You know, and we were like, whoa, we we're going to get in trouble, we we're die already, drink coffee, right? Drink coffee. And then she was like, wow, you know what you did for us in two posts, smash our KPIs for all the social content that we wanted to achieve. Nobody could achieve those numbers, but you did it twice and it smashed everything. She was like, can I give you my full calendar for the next three months? 
and you just make fun of me and I'll pay you. And we were like, what? You pay us to make fun of you? And she was like, yeah, try that. And I was like, wow, that's the best deal I've ever heard of. <laughs> yeah, we'll sign it. So we did that. We made fun. We did so many crazy things. The best thing we did with them those three months, we named the plane Boeing. Boeing 747. Boeing 747. <laughs> and they actually printed it on the plane and flew it. So we had named the freaking plane. And Scott Campbell, the CEO of Scoot back then, was so game, right? He was doing all these weird things with us on social. And we had so much fun. So that was that. It ended in three months. And it was back to normal. We took a little bit of money, enough to, again, take past to work, eat a little bit for lunch and dinner. And then it was quiet. And at this point, there's still only the two of you, right? Yeah, just two of us. Yeah. It was quiet again. And then I came back to work one morning and my inbox exploded. Our our SGAC general inquiry inbox was flooded. Air Asia, la, Jetstar, la, <laughs> RWS, la, Pepsi, la, everybody, Tiger Beer. I was like, whoa, what happened? And then everybody was like, congratulations. I was like, congratulates for what? And they were like, you won a lot of awards last night. I was like, what What happened last night? I was at home. And they were like, oh, you won five Marketing Go Awards at the Marketing Excellence Awards with Scoot. And I was like, what? Nobody invited us. Nobody told us. <laughs> and they were like, oh yeah, congrats anyways, but we want to meet. So everybody wanted to meet. And that was when I realized, wow, I think we have something here because everybody wants to talk to us now. And if we do well, there's this viral loop around the business cycles where I don't have to go and like cold call people. Like the content sold itself and the brands would sell, sell it for us. So I was like, this is brilliant, but we have one problem. None of us are media trained. He's an econ student. I'm an econ student. He's a business student. So like, what happens now? Like, we don't even know how to use DSLRs, Photoshop. We don't know these things. So we were like, okay, never mind. Let's get the deals in first. If people actually sign, then we'll go and find talent to, to do these deals for us because we literally use PowerPoint or Keynote on MacBooks to make the whole first batch of memes for Scoot. Not on Photoshop, totally not professional. So we're like, okay, never mind. We sign first, then we figure it out. So that's kind of how we started discovering this business model. I want to thank our sponsor for this season, Leonica K Trichology. I've been to one treatment and it's one of the best pampering sessions I've had. The hair massage is divine and the products are formulated by Leonica herself, who has over two decades of experience in trichology. If you're looking for a solution to your hair problems, whether it's an oily scalp, postpartum hair loss, or dry hair, or just want to treat yourself to self-care, I highly recommend Leonica K. The boutique is at Vocal Hotel, and you can check them out at leonicak.com. The link is also in the show notes. And how has your, or how has Hatmill Media involved, or evolved, yeah. you know, with... You know, now Facebook is boomer, kind of all boomers <laughs> on Facebook, right? So everyone's on TikTok, everyone's on Be Real now, right? So so how, how do you keep innovating, I guess, for like for a better word? Well, the first, the first phase of our business, we call it O&O, right? Own and operate. So everything that we do, we make ourselves, right? Because we live in Southeast Asia. If you make fun of the wrong person in a specific country, there can be dire consequences, depending on which country that is, right? So we were very, very clear. It's very difficult for a Western media company to understand these lines because the West is very different fundamentally, right? So you see a lot of these cases where Western media companies come and they don't really succeed, uh, especially in the world of new media. Not talking about platform, but about content operators, right? So we were like, hey, starting from Singapore, 
it's okay because we are like super strict, right? So if we can survive here, I think we can survive anywhere around Southeast Asia. So we kind of started by moving platform to platform. So it was started, actually we started on Twitter first, right? And then, hmm. uh, oh no, it was Facebook first, then Twitter second, hmm. Instagram third. Then after that, we went YouTube, TikTok and whatnot. But then we've always been sort of moving with the platforms. And then we reached a point in 2019 where there was a team of very young kids in my office, not kids, la, employees, la, 18 years old. And they were like, boss, you should look at this app called TikTok. This was like January 2019. <laughs> and I was like, what is this app? It's like, it's from China. It's like a rehash of Douyin. It's like musically. Then they bought them and then blah, blah, blah. But it's really fun. And we do all these dances and transitions. And I'm like, dude, I don't get it, man. I totally don't get it. And they were like, no, boss, it's going to be the next big thing. Trust me. So I was like, okay, three of you go and find all the youngest people in the office and then just keep making content on it and then every month just come back and tell me how it did, right? <laughs> so they started that in January 2019. Every month, oh, how many millions? How many millions? How many millions? And it's just like exponential growth. I was like, who's on this app? Why are there so many people? <laughs> right? And who are all these other people on this app? Why are there so many people dancing on this app? <laughs> Why would people want to dance in front of the camera? So I was very confused. <clears throat> I was very confused by this phenomenon. But then I was like, eh, there are a lot of funny people on this app. Are they Singaporean? And they were like, yeah, they're all Singaporeans. And I'm like, I've never seen them. They're not Insta famous. They're not YouTube famous. They come from where? <laughs> and they were like, I don't know. They're just regular kids. And I was like, I've never seen this before because we remember we have moved from Facebook to Twitter to Instagram to YouTube. Now and then you see YouTubers. Now and then you see a lot of Instagrammers. But then... We've never been an influencer agency because I can't help influencers look better. But then I see a lot of funny people now and I'm like, these are really funny people. I want to meet them. So I literally got on a plane early 2020 after the TikTok experiment went well. And I invited all the funniest TikTokers in each country to come have coffee in Manila, in KL, and in Singapore. And we met like 10 in each country. Just talk to your users, right? And I was like, do you know who we are? Like, do you follow us? And they're like, yeah, you know, through through school, we follow you guys. And I'm like, you have 5 million followers. How much did you make last month? And then I never forget this, right? This Filipino kid looks at me. I made 10 US dollars last month. And I'm like, on what? I was like, I was promoting some like gambling site. And I'm like, 10 bucks, that's it. You have 5 million followers. And they're like, yeah, that's fun. It's just fun. And I'm like, wow, there's this severely underserved market. And there's this huge tectonic shift of creators being born right now. Wow, I've never seen anything like that. And then COVID hit, right? And I was still like, okay, what should we do? So I called these creators when COVID hit because we couldn't shoot uh, for our own content business. And I was like, hey man, what are you doing? It's COVID, right? And they're like, nothing. There's no school, we're doing nothing. I'm like, what if I got you to attend a class by Xiaoming, Adrian? to teach you about brand safety, ideation, and uh, branded campaigns, maybe just an hour each day for three days. Would you Would you come? And maybe we'll get some deals for you at the end of the week. And they were like, yeah, why not? I'm really bored anyways. So about 100 of them sat through these classes in, in the height of COVID, March 2020. And then we called our clients and we're like, hey, you know that video that we can't shoot because we don't know when this COVID thing will end? I got 100 of these kids ready to shoot from their bedrooms and they're huge on TikTok. Do you want to try and then the brands, some of them, 50% were like, yeah. 50% was like, hell no. Like, I don't, TikTok's not safe. <laughs> but for the 50% who did, that birthed a new business for us. Because we realized, like, we could really value add to these kids. Because they were all brand new. They were born on TikTok. And none of them knew how to integrate that seesaw integration of content and 
brands and then the brands didn't know how to work with these kids so we were like what if we built a professional layer to service both sides and kind of help you find that equilibrium and find that safety zone professionally delivered but you're going to work with all these kids and that was kind of how we birthed the network business because we realized that we had become just one of the millions of channels now on this new creator economy on these new platforms and we couldn't do it like how we used to do it because there's just so many of them but we could play a very different role in this space by becoming like the OG the big brother to a lot of them and then bringing deals to them helping guide them in their journey as creators so that's kind of how we pivoted our business through the last couple of years and how do you differentiate yourself from the other creators network I mean you have a few of them right you you have uh I cannot remember. Gosh, cloud. cloud. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, so, I, I think media. there are so many, right? Yeah. There are really so many. Yeah. And if you think about it, there's no barriers to entry. Any, you can start one. You can start, Everybody can start one tomorrow. But the idea is we are not here to serve everybody. I think we look at people who really want to do it full-time, who really fit into what we stand for, um, really like the way that we do things, Usually it starts with comedy, right? A lot of comedy creators have very high views, very low monetization. So we started with comedy. And then after a while, clients were like, hey, can you go and uh, get a group of uh, mummies, mummy creators to join also? And then that allowed us to expand across verticals. I think the question of, again, start with why, right? The question when I did this was, why should we do this? How can I differentiate from my competitors? Which was a quintessential question to ask. And my response to that was, well, we are creators first. And we've been creating since the start of social media. We've gone viral and we have done all sorts of funny things with brands. We kind of know this space inside out, especially on the short video format. If you're a really beautiful influencer who takes really nice photos, slaps on nice makeup and nice filters, I, I can't help you, I'm sorry. And we don't want to work with these people because we can't value add to you. The whole concept of creating value is I can really be a partner to you and I can really help you. And for a lot of these TikTok kids, we can really help. So for us, it's TikTok only, short videos only, storytelling, scripting, that's really our strength. For the really, really professional Instagram guys that are there already, we can't help, unfortunately. So we are very, very clear lah, where we stand and who we want to work with. And how do you lead your team? You know, they're all very young. You know, very they obviously creative. have yeah, very different uh, ways of consuming content, you know, and, and different views. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think Mark Cuban has this really nice saying, right? Um, because most people look at the Gen Z and then they curse them, right? They're like, oh, strawberry. This generation, them entitled, you know, them useless. Uh, forget them, lah, right? Uh, that's the word on the street, right? But if you think about what Mark Cuban said, what he said was, this is the most educated, uh, financially capable generation that is going to make an employment decision based on a set of criterias and not just the pay package, for example. And that is very different from, let's say, the boomer generation that simply, oh, just grind it through. There's no such thing as passion. I don't care what your company does. You give me an iron rice bowl, I will work for you till I die, right? And now Gen Zs are very different. You need to understand what the company stands for. What are the values? Is it a flexible organization? What do you care about as an organization? These things are fundamentally questions that they ask before they join you. And I think people need to understand that the generational differences are real. If you want to be a workplace that attracts a certain generation, you must appeal to them in a certain manner. And I think we spend a lot of time understanding the generations before condemning them or before saying, oh, we never ever want to hire Gen Zs. <laughs> because the fact is that we do, right? We hire a ton of them. And we need to understand things like, oh, 
they are bound to jump every two years. Why? Because they live in a world where there's so many opportunities to do things. You could be a creator today. You could do com- completely something else in Bali and and just you know do a remote digital nomad kind of gig if you if you're so pleased to right these opportunities didn't exist 10 years ago now they have them and so they are free to do whatever they want so turnover after two years sure all the best you know maybe we'll work together again so the approach even from a policy from a leadership from a hr perspective is completely topsy-turvy right and if you have people who come from a different generation or different experience in a very traditional mindset it's not it's not going to work because these people are not going to buy into things that are not going to speak their language they're not going to speak what they care about and and we have to understand that first. And this changes every few years, right? So these are kind of things we set ourselves down to really understand, to really build a workplace that people want to be in. And you recently closed a funding round. Um, Do you want to tell us, can you tell us more about what it's for and what you plan to use it for? So, I mean, (laughs) you think about how I started, right? Mm. Who wants to invest in a meme company? Like nobody in their right frame of mind would do that. I wouldn't do that right back then because we haven't figured things out. We don't know where this is going to go. Bunch of dudes, two dudes, had a lot of fun, uh, made some money. But how scalable is this investment? So when we were approached by investors in the early years, (coughs) the answer was no. Please oh, don't. you said yeah. no to investors. Yeah, like, why would you invest in a meme company? Like, nobody would do that. I wouldn't be able to return anything to you. So I turned away a lot of people. Um, and, and then one day, this gentleman came and he was like, oh, I'm an ad exec CEO of uh, this ad agency. I can really help you grow your business. I'm like, dude, you don't know anything about memes. Like, go away, right? <laughs> and he was persistent. He was like, no, 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 no. You do not understand this business. You're a kid. Call me when you run into trouble. I'll be around, right? So I really called him a couple of months later because I ran into trouble with some advertising issues and I didn't know who to turn to. So I called him and he came down, helped me. And he was like, by the way, I'm stepping down as the regional CEO of this ad network. And it was a big corporate job with like thousands of people under him. I'm like, what you going to do? And he was like, oh, I'm going to do like PSLE for, for my son. And I'm like, that's it? From CEO to PSLE meant like tutor? He was like, yeah. I'm like, join us, like be my mentor or something, right? And then he was like, really? I'm like, yeah, I think I could use your help because he proved credibility, right? And I was like, yeah, why not just join us? And then he joined as an advisor. And after one month, he was like, this is not working out. I really, really like you guys. I think I should take a stake in your company to make it worthwhile. And I'm like, what does that mean? He was like, I'll call a few friends, put together some money, put a bit of seat round, and then I'll join your board. And I was like, okay. The condition is, I must interview every one of your friends that you want to bring on because I didn't want the wrong person to join us and just ruin the business. So I flew around with him. We interviewed 13 angel investors and I said yes to most of them. Some of them I said no. And then we f- that formed our first seed round, right? So 2016, we raised and then we just didn't raise money all at all, right? There was a lot of interest, but I was like, the business is not scalable fundamentally, right? We were not going to become the next grab. We were not going to be a $100 million company with memes and funny videos, right? It was good cash flow. We were profitable, right? But not explosive growth. And that was that. But then when I stumbled upon the creator network business and we executed that through COVID, the business changed, right? We suddenly had this business where we don't make anything and we work with hundreds of creators and we were able to sort of do things at scale across countries suddenly. And so we ended 
the COVID year in a very on a very strange note because 2020, I thought, you know, we were gonna die. We didn't know what was the impact on digital businesses. I'm I'm certainly not experienced enough to to say I lived through the last recession as a business owner. So for me, I thought I was gonna die, but we actually did okay and we did well. And so when we did well, we got a knock on the door from. Uh, Pavilion Capital, one of the sub funds of Tomasic, and they were like, "Hey, we heard about you guys. We looked at your numbers this year. You look great. Can we talk about an investment?" And I'm like, "Man, when you get a call from a guy like that, I'm like, <laughs> of course I'm gonna say yes. But why would you want to invest in me, right?" So you know, we sat down, really got to understand each other. It was a very long process, but at the end of the day, we felt. Really compelled to work with somebody that can also help us to grow to the next level, and I think the whole thesis of the creator economy by 2021 had been very very different from when we first started, and our business looked very very different from when we first started, and that was when we were a lot more confident to say, yeah, I think we're ready for the next tier. So we did like a 10 million round, and you know they joined our board, and I've worked with them for about a year now, and it's been really really nice because they're super super smart. They challenge us and they just give us. A lot of insight into how we can do things, and and we really love the relationship. The guy on my board is also XSMU, and I just love that sort of relationship that we have with them. So again, we wanted to make sure that we didn't get some investment banking PE douchebag who, who you know, is gonna tell us what to do because he worked in a a bank. Because we don't work in a bank, right? We work in a very different world, and I just didn't need people to tell us what to do. I need needed people to give us wisdom, uh, discernment, mentorship uh, when things got tough, and give us a clarity into the future. And I think these guys that I work with, I'm privileged to have the chance to work with these guys. Well, I, I have two questions to. Sorry. I have two questions to that. So the first question is, you know, I guess the people in the professional corporate world always look at content creators or for yourself, right? As people who got lucky on Instagram, on social media networks. Um, and I think to most people, they don't realize how much work there is, right? And it's just being lazy, you know? So first, what do you think of that? And the second question leading to that is also, do you think that there will be another SGAG in Singapore landscape or are we already saturated now? To your first question, uh, I think there's a very, very big macro shift, right? And I think a lot about this, which I think nobody really talks about. You want to study the formation of media, right? So if you think about the first wave of media, the mode of media in the first wave, which is like print, television, radio, right? It's been around for maybe a century or even more, right? So the dominant mode of such infrastructure has is legacy. It's not something that came out like five years ago. It's been hundreds of years. Like print has been hundreds of years. Radio's hundreds of years, right? TV also from the only innovation was like non-color to color, right? That was about <laughs> it, right? And if you think about who can start one of these companies, if you wanted to start a TV station or do a podcast like this ten years ago, you can't. You need a satellite. You need billions of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need government approval. Usually, some sort of government-linked company in Asia, it's very much state-owned, right? Because state also has an agenda for media. That's always the case historically. And then you kind of look at what happened in the last five years. Suddenly, you have a podcast idea. Hey, let's start a podcast. Uh, you have a YouTube channel. Hey, start a YouTube channel. You have an Instagram account idea to make memes. Okay, you start one. And then what do we compete for? If you think about the first traditional business model, you compete 
for distribution. Distribution is locked. It is a monopoly. You either can deliver newspapers to every household or you can't. You either can have a license to run a TV network or you can't. There is no in-between. You can't get it if you even if you wanted it, if nobody wants to give it to you. And then distribution is monopolized. Right now, distribution is free. You have an idea. You can start one. So what do we compete for? We compete for ideas. We compete on product. Who has a better product? Because distribution is equal now. Everybody has the same access to Spotify, YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, whatever that is. Nobody can say I have an advantage when I first start my channel because we're all same. So people get attracted to ideas and they follow people because of great product or great ideas or great content. So for a lot of these content creators or influencers obviously it started in a bad spot like oh very controversial la, a lot of drama la, maybe <laughs> you know show a lot more skin and then get more likes la. but it has changed right so you take a look at for example podcasts you don't see these people I don't know how they look like but if they have really good content I'm going to subscribe and I'm going to keep listening right hopefully to this podcast too and <laughs> if you take a look at creators right if they have really creative content people follow not because you know, it's super sexy or super drama. It's just really cool content, really good content. So you compete on product. So product has really improved. And to your point, that's when the work comes in. People differentiate by making really innovative content, really great shows, really high quality videos. People follow for a reason. There's utility at the end of the day. And that's fundamentally changing. Today, when people consume, like I just watch my kids watch YouTube, right? They don't want to sit there and wait for Cartoon Network to serve them the next show. They want to choose which show they want to watch right now, right here on my phone at the restaurant. And that on-demand consumption, a lot of times, is on a YouTube channel, right? So he wants to watch his favorite YouTuber because there's an unboxing video or there's some sort of walkthrough video. And I'm like, wow, if my son is watching this all the time, that's so powerful because that person making it does not come from a big Viacom kind of channel. It's a family in the US who makes this in their bedrooms and it's completely captured my son's attention. When he goes to Toys R Us, he wants to buy their toys. When he goes to the clothing store, he wants to buy their merch. All he wants to do is associate himself with the brand. And that is so powerful. And I think that is just the next generation of brand building where brand builders are everywhere. It can be you and me, as long as you have the attention of the audience, you can build a brand that resonates with a niche audience. And I think that is fundamentally how the world of consumption is going to look like in the future. So I would say to those guys, it's different. It has changed. It started from a very controversial sex sells kind of uh, angle to look at the world of creativity right now. Just open TikTok. It's crazy, crazy, crazy. Even within TikTok, it started with sexy girls dancing. Now you see all sorts of really creative stuff going on and I love it, right? So I think that trend is not going to slow down. It's only going to continue to accelerate across different platforms. Maybe enabled by blockchain. Maybe on a blockchain-enabled platform where everybody gets to trade and sell and own things that are unique, right? I don't know, but it certainly had hit it in that direction. Will there be another SGAG? Will there be another Hubble Media? Uh, yes, absolutely. I, I think the whole concept is that um, we, we are just seeing waves, shorter, shorter waves of disruption. Uh, I don't think we will be disrupted with the exact same model. I think we'll be disrupted by a new model, right? So again, going back to what I shared earlier, right? The original mode of the uh, media formats have existed for centuries without disruption. Now we're seeing people getting disrupted every five years. Let's just look at Meta, right? You look at the birth of TikTok and we read about this short video war every day. Meta was sitting on top of the world. They own everything. Share price just booming Mark Zuckerberg, just having so much fun. And then suddenly this random app from China that got birthed five years ago is destroying him, right? And he's scared and he's panicking and the share, share market, the stock market doesn't like it, right? Why? 
because of an app that came out from China five years ago. Just five years, causing absolute chaos and disruption. So if they can go through that, we definitely will go through that. Be it another group that wants to start something or another crazy group that wants to go viral on another platform that maybe we are slow to catch, it will happen. And I think that's something that every business must be ready for because the age of disruption, the rate of disruption is just ridiculously fast right now. What is your biggest failure? Well, my biggest failure, I failed so many times, right? I think, uh, and you know what? The fun story is that uh, I actually was super inspired by Chachi because he came to uni when Adrian and I were doing this and he spoke in our class because our professor was his uh, Harvard Business School roommate and we got unfiltered access to him before he started one championship and he just spoke about failures. So I'll never forget that lecture he gave, right? And we talk openly about failures because we're so inspired by him to do so. And one of the biggest failures I've gone through, I think as a young leader, as an early leader, when the company was growing, it was very, very difficult. When we were like 20 people going to 50 people, that was some of the hardest days because I've never worked before. I have no McKinsey consulting experience. I don't come from that kind of world where I was ex-Google, ex-McKinsey, ex-nothing. I was literally selling houses, failed startup, and then now I'm doing this. And then suddenly people come to me and like, boss, what's my career progression? I'm like, I have no idea. Right? I don't really know. Right? And then I think one of the biggest challenges was making courageous decisions as a young leader was really, really hard. Like I held back in making good, courageous, right, courageous decisions because I was scared, because I was just so scared to do the right thing and I don't act on it and I had, uh, you know, just no courage to do so, which snowballed into a set of consequences that came back to bite me later in a business sense, right? I think that was something I had to learn the hard way, right? But be it burnt relationships, uh, burnt opportunities because of my inaction is something that I think is like a scar that you look back on and you go, man, yeah, that's a lesson that I always want to hold close to my heart in being able to make courageous right decisions, not easy ones, definitely. And I think that comes with age and experience, but those were some of the biggest failures that I can think of. Can you go into specifics? Are you comfortable? Yeah, I'm comfortable. I I, I think it's always to deal with people. We we deal with a lot of people. I think um, there was an instance back in 2018. um, Toxic culture was just breeding within the organization. And what I had done is I had preserved and I had chosen to preserve a particular relationship with a close colleague of mine that in that sense, I have watched her grow over the years with us. And she was breeding toxic behavior within the organization. But there was always this side of me that kind of close one eye. I was not courageous enough to say that is toxic behavior. We need to cut this because it was beyond coachability. It was beyond uh, repair already. And this toxicity had sort of spread across the organization already, causing us a lot of issues that my people had to fix. So looking back, what I should have done is to just cut that relationship from the get-go, the moment I sensed it. And that's something I'm doing now. Uh, if I face the same situation, I'll do it right now, right here. But back then, I was like, no lah, can coach one lah. Can lah, give chance lah. Three strikes ma, Right, can coach one lah. It'll get better. Don't worry, people change, right? But then I realized like, my job as the CEO or the founder is to make tough decisions quick so that we can really cut off the cancer cells, right? If we see something really spreading and that's something I couldn't do back then. I was just paralyzed because I had valued relationships over making the right decisions for the business. And so those failures, I think still, you know, some of the old employees, they still laugh at me. They're like, hey, now you, why are you so fierce now? Last time you were not like that one, eh? Oh. Right, but you know, it's something that I think has changed with time and, and with experience. Uh. 
So how do you view the NOC saga? Well, the NOC saga is unfortunate, right? I mean, I know most of them personally. I think it it is really something that's not great for the industry. It is something that I wish never happened for them because it's painful. It's very, very painful, not just for them, the, the couple involved, but for the staff also. The livelihoods are lost, right? Uh, great ideas are lost. Great projects are lost. I'm a fan of the Food King series. And, and I just hope that, you know, they can all settle on and move on to their next projects. I know there's been some news this week that uh, Sylvia has moved on because she was a friend of mine, right? And, and I've kind of awesome. known her for a while. I mean, I've not spoken to her in a while, but there was no bad blood all yeah. between all of us. Just watching from a side, the people that really suffer are those that gave their lives to the company and gave their time to the company. And I think it's just very, very unfortunate. I want to ask about your leadership style. Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, you are inexperienced. As in, you, had no pr- sorry, you have no prior experience. Yeah. You have to learn on the go. Yeah. And I, I think from our conversation, you fashioned yourself as somebody who loves the business more yeah. than being a let's say management, right? How do you grow your leadership skills and how do you see yourself growing? Yeah, that was such a key question to ask in 2017. Again, that phase from 20 to 50, because I read a lot of management books, a little bit like Anna. (laughs) I always look at her reading list and ask, which one have I not read? Wow, And then, And then when when I read all these books, I'm always like, huh? It's not relatable eh? because these are like multi-billion dollar listed companies like Rags to Riches already listed. Like I can't relate, man. And I'm like, I'm struggling with 20 people here. Hello. I need some material for like the in-between, you know, the chasm. I I can't write from that. So I'm like, the chasm, right? Where is this chasm? And I was like, okay, firstly, I need help. I think that's the first step to self-awareness as a young leader. I need help. I need help. I need help. So the first thing I did was reading is not fast enough. If I don't learn fast enough, everybody's going to quit because I'm just an ineffective leader and nobody wants to work f- for me because I suck, right? That was a very real thing. So the first thing I did was to call my first investor, who's my mentor, right? And I was like, dude, I need help. I realized I don't know how to manage people and I realized I need help. Can you refer me to somebody who can really help me? And he was like, okay, call this person. She's a coach. And I called her and I'm like, can you coach me? And she's like, who the heck are you, right? And I was like, <laughs> I just need help. I'm running this company, we're growing, I don't know what I'm doing, can you help? And so we sat down with this management coach. You know, She was head of people for a large MNC, had worked with, what, 5,000 overhead count and, and introduced coaching and super experience, right? And she coached me for a year, 52 weeks. Every week she would come in with me and just watch me at work, right? She would watch me at my stand-up meetings with my leadership. She will watch me at town halls. She will watch me walking around the office. She will watch how I behave at lunch. She was just watching and coaching me. And she changed my life. She coached shit out of me, right? And she was so, she was an older lady. And it was like maybe a mother teaching a child, right? Because she was way older than me. And she was just like, you shouldn't do this because of da-da-da-da. And she wouldn't say you shouldn't. She would ask me, why did you do this? Why did you act this way? Why did you say that? And she would just kind of coach me to this answer of self-discovery. And that completely changed my life. Like, I was so self-aware about who I was because of her, because of her time spent just guiding me and just leading me on to be able to answer these questions about management and self-discovery and self-awareness. And for everything that I didn't know, I had to complement that with books. So I that year, I just, just powered through books like Anna does every day. I just did it for that year because I felt like 
if I didn't do this, I'm going to be replaced one day with a professional who's going to wear a suit, right? And that would kill the business. And I want to do this because I love the business, right? So I really needed to educate myself. So that was something that I did. And it really changed the business. Even for my co-founder, we both committed to coaching for one year. And it completely changed both of us. It really, 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 really helped us. I think we wouldn't be here without them for sure. Yeah. What, what, what were the lessons that you learned? The lessons I learned was that <clears throat> when you're a 20-something year old, you have a business, you make a bit of money, you think you're the king of the world. That's a natural founder ego that comes with any 20-something year old, right? You think you're a rock star and you think you know it all and you don't have to listen to people because I'm a founder, right? And I think that is the number one thing I learned. Actually, I don't know a lot of things. And I have this natural uh, inclination to write people off when people speak about topics that I'm unfamiliar with because I'm afraid or I'm just too busy or I'm just too nonchalant to care. And I realized like I was writing people off without even giving an opportunity to learn. And I was so arrogant, right? So she helped call that out. And I was like, actually, I can learn so much from so many people. And I'm just a 20-something kid, year old kid who doesn't know about anything, right? And I think that perspective really changed me, right? Just to realize that I'm really not a rock star. I'm not some Elon Musk. Everybody thinks they're Elon Musk or Lee Kuan Yew. I'm not, right? I'm just a regular dude who got lucky. And if I want to keep this company afloat, I have to really keep learning and improving and failing and learning and improving and just humbling myself to be super self-aware. I think self-awareness was the key thing. And I think that that was a great starting point for us. How has fatherhood changed you? Man, fatherhood changed me so much. Um, I'll tell you a very honest opinion of fatherhood, right? <laughs> the first, I got married very young. I got married when my first startup failed. I was 26 years old. I had a little bit of savings from my real estate job, but my startup failed. I let go of all my employees. We parted, I parted away with my co-founders and I was still discussing with Adrian like, should I get this job? Should I work with him to start SGAG, you know, between the fights and all that, you know, just thinking about it with my wife or wife-to-be. And she was like, yeah, you should start this business. And I was like, you know what else I should do? I think we should get married now. You know, just the anti, like going against the grain, right? That was just my DNA, just like being a rebel and doing things my way. I had no money. I had nothing. And I was like, I think we should get married because when we have nothing, it means it's real. Like there's nothing to distract us. So we got married at 26. I had my first kid at 28, right? And the business was like the same age as my baby. <laughs> like about the same time, 2018, he was born. The business was going through that crazy phase where I didn't know what I was doing. And I had this kid. I didn't even have a house back then, right? So I was staying with my parents. And the kid came out. And firstly, I couldn't fly anymore. Secondly, I couldn't go out with my wife anymore. I was grounded. And thirdly, I was just in darkness all the time because I lived with my parents and then the baby sleeps very early. I come back after work and I'm just sitting in complete silence, darkness. I couldn't do calls. I had to whisper when I did calls. And I just felt like he robbed everything away from me. I felt that sense of, why the hell would anyone want kids? He's slowing me down. He's cramping my style. He's, uh, you know, blocking me from traveling. So, you know, when I took my first paternity leave, it's supposed to be two weeks. After two days, I told my wife, I'm going crazy. I need to go back to work, right? And being the super understanding woman that she is, she's like, yeah, go. I hate you, but go, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then I went back and then my colleagues were like, what the hell? Why are you back here? It's two days. I'm like, I can't do this, man. I need to, I need to work on the, the startup. I can't be a father because I was just struggling mentally to like clean poop and like, pet the baby I'm like I can't value add to this I'm I, I'm so much more needed 
in the company. So my wife was super understanding and I resented the baby, right? To be very honest, I hated it. And I felt angry, right? That he was just blocking me from achieving my goals faster. But then everything changed, right? Because after the first year, I realized I could help. I realized like I could interact with him. I could take him out by myself. Uh, the business was more stable. And I started to discover the fa- the joys of fatherhood only after about a year, right? And at first I was like, man, I told my wife, this is it, one only, never again. You know, I can't do this anymore. Famous last word. Yeah. <laughs> and then after that, after about one and a half years, I was like, actually it was still pretty rough. It was really until like two plus three I was like, actually, it's much better now. Like, I'm having fun. The business is stable and I can really help. But it took me three years to get to that point. And then after that, I was really like, people change, circumstances change, things change. And I think that's one thing that I was sort of coaching myself to understand. Even though you felt a certain way about a certain subject, things change, right? I change. So I was like, yeah, let's have a second one. I'm super open. Uh, And then we had a second one and it was very different. The second one is very easy. Easy for me to say, but my wife obviously shouldn't be listening to this, but it was much easier. (laughs) It was much easier. Like, eh, like more experience. I know what to do. I know how I can help. I know what I can do. I took one week of paternity instead of two days, right? Not still the full two weeks, but I was around more. And it was just a lot more enjoyable, right? So things change. And then we're having our third in May next year. Oh, congrats. Right? Thank you. So my wife's like, wow, you know, like you completely changed. And I was like, yeah, I think people change fundamentally. I think it's just being open and aware of, of how we can just evolve as human beings. So I wanted to circle back to the very start of this interview and you mentioned that when you first sort of started your business you wanted to create an impact right 10 million dollars later three well soon to be three kids later one marriage later thankfully just one <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just, just the one <laughs> not three <laughs> or, or ten <laughs> yeah one better don't listen to this I'm sorry wife but uh, yeah after all that has your impact changed as your view on impact change. Absolutely. Um, I think when, you know, and, and I, I I credit this to my amazing colleagues, right, that many of whom have journeyed with me for a long time. Um, we, we, we ask these big questions every year, right? Every six months, we, we take a long walk together, uh, individually, one-on-one. I love doing that with them. And I just ask this question with them, right? Like, have we really created impact? Have we really made anything? Have we really built something that's meaningful and impactful? Have we? Or are we just doing this for other reasons, right? And and that's very important because if we lose sight of that, then what's the point of doing this, right? Like, it has to go back to the founding story, right? And the ASGAC mission statement, the North Star is like to better the lives of Singaporeans, right? And as we expanded that regionally to better the lives of the people that watch our content. But as we started to work with creators, the mission statement became to we want to empower the next generation of creators. And this North Star is something that's not achievable in the next hundred years or so. It's really a North Star that keeps us moving. And how do we know we're on track, right? Because you can't measure it on Salesforce and go, yeah, we hit the targets this month, right? We can't. So we rely on stories and the power of stories to, to motivate us. I'll give you an example, right? When I started the creative business, we you know, ran for a couple of months, got this bunch of creators in Philippines, a couple of gigs from 
you know, good blue chip brands, right? And they called me and they were like, oh, I was just so thankful for you, you know. And I was like, tell me your story. Like, tell me your story of why this was impactful or meaningful for you. And they were like, you know, my parents, uh, one is a bus driver, one works as a, you know, uh, a hawker. And due to COVID, the income is zero, right? And we have a lot of people to feed in the family. And suddenly it's like, how do we survive as a family? Are we just, they were just waiting for handouts from the government to give them a sack of rice and then they were just going to split and just eat rice until COVID is going to end. Um, that's scary. Imagine living through that, right? And then they're like, I just started making TikToks on, in my bedroom and then you called me and then you started paying me. You started giving me money that I used to buy food for my family. I became the sole breadwinner for my family. And I was like, wow, that is so powerful because you were just a random kid on TikTok doing dances a couple of months ago. <laughs> and now you become the provider for your family and for your siblings. And that story, we hear that so many times across, especially through COVID. And that really inspired us, right? Because the impact is no longer hee ha ha right? It's like, wow, real money, real checks, real people, real lives change, right? Now they're making money. And that inspires us a lot, right? And for the people that want to do good work, that continue to invest in their in themselves and just want to put your head down and keep working, those are the ones that keep us going. And we go, yeah, I think we can build a new economy together. We can really build your career with you and really make something out of nothing together. And I think that really inspires, inspires us. But at the core of it, content is still far-reaching. Content is still something that can go out there. And I think there can be a lot of negative content, dark content, content that's harmful, right, for young people especially. So if we flip that and we work with content creators that make really good content, positive content, content that reinforces good values, that can give us so much more skill on that mission instead of just doing it ourselves. And that vision that we had was just like, wow, it is so powerful if you combine and collective the collective of these thousands of creators we can potentially work with in the region and just magnify the impact 10 times instead of just doing it alone. And I think that's super inspiring that, that we just want to keep looking for that North Star. So we have a tradition on this podcast, uh, which I stole. <laughs> <laughs> but the tradition is very simple. Um, so you, there's a piece of paper right in front of you. So this is a question from our previous guest. Uh, we haven't read it yet. Both of us haven't read it. So we have no idea what's on it. Uh, but Ooh. could you open it, read the nice. question, and answer it? It might be difficult. Wow. Who, so who, who was the previous guest? I forgot. Shin Hui. Oh. Tan Shin Hui from Park Group. Wow. Yeah, so... High pressure. <laughs> Probably stayed at some of her hotels. <laughs> okay. So let me read the question. Yeah. Yes. Name one thing about you that everyone thinks they know to be true, but it's actually not true. Mm. Oh, good question. <laughs> well, I, I, I think there is this general impression that um, maybe people think I am confident uh, or I'm very certain of certain things. So for example, when I had the idea for the Creator Network, I grabbed two of my colleagues grabbed my co-founder and I was like this is it we're gonna do this we're gonna build this it's such a clear image in my head I see it already I see it already right and I think that confidence obviously is a way to persuade them but actually inside I'm like, I have no clue right like I have no idea how I'm gonna get there uh, it's often a big and very macro very 
beautiful broad picture but I have no details like I'm a super big picture person I have no idea how we're going to get there um, and I don't know if we ever will and many a times I've not gotten there obviously um, for me it is really about building a team and figuring things out but you kind of need that foolish first person to go that's where we're going to go we're going to be fine and we're going to get there and I'm that person but Actually, I have no idea how we're going to get there. And then people figure out later, actually, you had no idea, right? I'm like, yeah, actually, it was just kind of winging it, going by faith, right? And after a while, it's like, yeah, see, told you, told you we'll get there, right? But actually inside, it's like, oh, shit, oh, shit. What if we never get there? What if I have led them to the wilderness and this is not a place they want to be? And of course, that's scary. But thankfully, you know, we have found uh, a path, a clear path sometimes to get to where we want to be. And I think that's something people don't know. They always think, well, he's got it all worked out in his head. But actually, no, you know, with a lot of things that I do, I'm just kind of winging it half the time. It's like fatherhood, right? Yeah. It's just like, (laughs) yeah, let's have more kids. Uh, Okay, how are we going to do that? Uh, Not sure. But we'll wing it. We'll figure it out, right? I think it's just maybe a guy thing just to be very, very like just broad and big picture well thank you so much Carl for your time I really 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 appreciate it that you know you shared with us your wisdom I think we've learned a lot of things today thank, thank you, you. And thank I'm you I'm sure you'll inspire all the re- rebellious people out there <laughs> thank you so much thanks guys I had fun I want to thank our sponsor for this season Leonica K Trichology I've been to one treatment and it's one of the best pampering sessions I've had The hair massage is divine and the products are formulated by Leonica herself who has over two decades of experience in trichology. If you're looking for a solution to your hair problems, whether it's an oily scalp, postpartum hair loss or dry hair or just want to treat yourself to self-care, I highly recommend Leonica K. The boutique is at Vocal Hotel and you can check them out at leonicak.com. The link is also in the show notes. 